It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'd like to pray as we begin and transition and then get started um, thinking this through with you. Let me pray. Father, please um, open our minds and our hearts to the wonder of the sweep of your missional purposes in the world through your word as um, we hear about the explanation that you give to redeem all the nations. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some memories in our lives remain very clear and sharp over time. I especially remember one in particular, one in which I went looking for my mom's grave. I was 11 years old in Venezuela, and I'd already been there for six years, so we had been in place there for a long time. And every, week, every eight weeks, we would climb aboard our school bus, which was a six-seater Cessna 185 tail dragger. And we would fly for two hours in that STOL aircraft. A STOL is an acronym for short takeoff and landing aircraft. Airplanes designed to land on grass airstrips 500 meters or shorter, in some cases 300, 350 meters. And we would climb aboard the plane and, and fly over to our, our boarding school location, stay for eight weeks at a time. You know, when you land in a 185, the tailwheel comes down last. That's why it's a tail dragger, and so that the tail will float until it finally touches down. Uh, one time, the pilot of that airplane was landing on my dad's airstrip. My dad's airstrip was uphill and dog-legged. It was 400 meters, and he, he touched his front wheels down, and the back w wing is still floating, that stabilizer, and he swung that stabilizer around ground-looped, that's a ground-loop, and flipped upside down and crashed the plane there on my dad's strip. He, he survived, the pilot survived, but we, so we, we took the fuselage and the wings, took the plane apart, put them in two big dugout canoes, and there was a fuselage going down the river in a dugout canoe and two wings in another, two and a half days down to salvage that airplane. But in the course of this day in August of 1984, as an 11-year-old kid, I heard that Cessna airplane land on the interior airstrip of that boarding school. And we were the only one, my older sister Candy and I, I was 11, she was 12, we were the only ones in the break room in our dorm, which was unusual because there should have been a lot of other boarding school kids there with us, eating our banana bread. And uh, we stood before those large screen windows and we saw my dad come up over the hill from the airstrip. His characteristically confident gait, you know, but his head was down and he was talking with one of the dorm parents and then I saw my two- and four-year-old brothers running with him. And my sister Candy saw them, and she started to cry. Because something was very wrong for my dad to be there. We were only one week into eight weeks at that school. And uh, the dorm parent who was in the room with us turned her face away because we could tell she was starting to cry. And we didn't see my mom with my dad. And in fact... Uh, truth is, we never saw my mom's face again. It turned out that my mom had been experiencing symptoms of fluish symptoms, uh, arrhythmia, heart arrhythmia, weakness and fatigue, and 
uh, on Saturday night that week, she had gone to bed and, and she never woke up. Uh, she had died in the night of a mitral valve prolapse and, uh, at 33 years old in an indigenous community there in the Amazon basin. And, you know, my parents had made together the decision not to fly her the two and a half, three hours out to the medical center uh, prior when, where she would have uh, received treatment because they didn't think the issue was that serious. And so my dad, Saturday night, late Saturday night, he, he found out my mom had died. He covered her body with a sheet, left her there on the bed, because the problem was the airplane contact wouldn't happen until Monday. And so he was there, my two and four-year-old brothers, and him keeping uh, my two brothers out of the room there where my mom's body lay, and he slept in the bed with them. And then early Monday morning, he got a hold of the airplane. They flew my mom's body out to the little interior town of called Puerto Ayacucho, which is a small city, capital of Amazonas State in Venezuela. And um, my dad flew over in another airplane, shuttled over to see us, to pick us up. And so that was us seeing my dad coming up the hill there, August 20th, 1984, a day that's hard for me to forget as I heard that Cessna 185 land. And then we flew straight out to, the, to that little town and, and uh, Venezuela had some laws about burial and burial times, and so that very same day, I remember very clearly, we stood in the pouring rain, in the rainy season, in the Amazon basin, surrounded by pungent mud and the exhaust from a still-running backhoe with a small group of missionary friends, and we put my mom's body in the ground in a really poorly marked grave there. I remember, in fact, you know, as a young kid, you have certain kinds of memories. I remember, in fact, I had new tennis shoes that my parents had bought me before I went to boarding school in those eight weeks. And I remember trying to keep the mud off my shoes as we stood there by my mom's grave, and finally I just gave up. And so you, you fast forward 20 years from that point, and Michelle and I and our two kids now are back in Venezuela um, working with another ethnic group called the Yanama. And we'd, we had built houses in an airstrip out in a remote area. And we um, were in process of learning that local language. And we heard over a public radio address that the president of the country, Hugo Chavez, had determined to kick all of the personnel out of the interior. Now, some of us had been in country for more than 30 years. And uh, this was a, it was tough for us to hear that news, but... Um, I decided in one of my last opportunities there in country to go try and find my mom's grave. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd had a hard time locating it in the past, and I returned to that interior town in Puerto Ayacucho and searched through that graveyard looking for my mom's grave, and I, I remember just not being able to find it. I never did find it. And so I ask you the question this morning, what in the world, and my, by the way, my mom's parents ask this question sometimes of us too, what in the world motivated us, my grandparents, my, my, mom, my, my dad's parents on the other side, his dad was a pilot. He was killed in a forest fire in Fout Springs in missionary training in the 50s. My dad was three years old. Um, he was planning to go fly in Venezuela as a, as a pilot. My, my parents... Us as children, what motivated us to take up that kind of circumstantial reality, that kind of environment? What, 
What motivates us to incur that kind of isolation and inconvenience, that kind of risk? I mean, I've had malaria more times than I can remember. My 32-year-old aunt died of cerebral malaria, falciparum gone cerebral, when she was 32 in a village there. Um, we've, we've faced significant malaria for my sweet girl, Talia Pamela, who's named after my mom because she was very sick with malaria when she was 18 months old. And it was one of those times when I thought the Lord was going to ask something of us that I didn't think I could handle. So who wants to risk that kind of loss to the security of American life? Is it bravado? Is it heroism? Is it romanticism, sentimentality, sensationalism, tearful stories that you can come home and tell? Well, I'm here to tell you we're not about that. I'm not about that. In fact, truth is, I don't like to tell stories from the field. My problem with telling field stories is that people start to think that they're drawn to field work because of those kinds of issues, and they're not. The fact is that, you know, there's a sense in which we all have our spheres of influence in life, and in a broad sense, we're all sent into the world. We're all missionaries in one broad sense every day, but that's not really what I think of when I think about missions and missionaries. Um, And what gave our band of brothers and sisters there in Venezuela uh, the right or the responsibility, the felt responsibility to prioritize that kind of sentness, that particular brand of sentness? I mean, if there are no priorities, who in the world is going to do that one, (laughs) right? There's a lot easier ones to do. So if there is no such thing as a missions priority, then why, why would we go do that one? If we don't have a clear definition, then it would be convenient to skip that one. Um, Does the Bible talk about priorities for us that help us to define missions well? Do the apostles talk about priorities? Does our Christian heritage discuss priorities? Those are questions that we want to be asking and answering as we work through this series uh, with you guys we want to be able to face up to the questions that family members and other believers ask that are uh, uh, skeptical sometimes and cynical and, and criti- critical questions about why are you guys doing that? Why make such an issue to do that? Why count the cost in those kinds of terms? Why do that? So in this six-week series, that's where we're headed. We're headed to, into an exploration of those questions, those kinds of questions about missions. So first, and let me give you three reference points for us overall in our series preview on your outline there. First, we're going to work through, number one, the overarching biblical narrative. That's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to work through the overarching biblical narrative. We're going to point out reference points along the way that will lead in two weeks to the Great Commission in the New Testament. And we're going to finish in five weeks with the revelation picture that you guys, I assume, know about of all tribes, tongues, nations, languages gathered around the throne to worship God. Okay, that's where we're going. So first is that overarching biblical narrative. Secondly, we're going to comment on the missionary heritage of the New Testament church. So the missionary heritage of the New Testament church. We'll see that in the the Great Commission passages in the book of Acts 
as we move on forward there in, in some of the latter weeks, that worldwide work that we have the tradition of, of the apostles, that stretches forward back into Jerusalem and forward through and out into the ends of the earth. And then thirdly, we're, we're also going to note the crucial missionary priorities of the Apostle Paul, because he's a, he's a model for us, an example for us of the kind of work that I feel convinced of, confident of, that the Bible is encouraging us toward as sent ones in this world. And so those are the three, over our, the, the three pri- primary points that we'll cover in the big sweep of the series, the overarching biblical narrative and the relationship of that to missions, our New Testament missionary heritage as believers in Christ, and thirdly, Paul's missionary priorities in particular as an example to us. Those will be the three main points that we cover broadly in the series. Now, I'm not going to spend time working in that kind of way today, but I wanted you to have that series overview uh, as we get started. So do me a favor, okay? Do me a favor. People of all ages, I know I have a broad range of of listeners here. I see my own kids here in the front. So I know we have a broad range, but listen with us. Track along with us. Okay, Talia? Track along with us. Um, Think and pray about our conclusions in places where you feel like we're not following the trail of biblical evidence. Then let's talk about it. But what we're trying to do is to define and prioritize for missions in such a way that we can feel confident that we are indeed following what the Bible is teaching about missions. You know, as one missiologist, Stephen Neal, so famously put it, if everything is missions, then nothing is missions. And that's the case with any discipline of life, we could say that. So we want to think and talk carefully about this as we think through the implications for missions over these weeks. So let's jump into our first main idea there. We have this main idea that that begins the journey. You have that idea in front of you, and we're going to stay in the Pentateuch, and I'm going to explain what the Pentateuch is because there's probably some people in the room who don't have a clue what that is. I'm not going to ask you, but I'm just guessing that there may be some. So we're going to stay in the Pentateuch, and you see the main idea there of the time we have this morning that God commands or commissions, I, I would even insert the word commissions there, his image bearers, Adam and Eve, to fill the earth with his glory. And he mandates that his chosen people, that would be Israel, faithfully reveal him to the surrounding nations by serving as his come and see representatives, even as God points forward to the Messiah, to Jesus, who will redeem all the nations. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but the idea there is to try to encapsulate the, the entirety of the point in one sentence. So we don't usually write that way. I could break that into three sentences, but I, I trust you can follow with me there. Now, that we're going to stay in the Pentateuch today, and then Cole next week is going to move past the Pentateuch into other books of the Bible. Now, is anybody under the age of 14? Can anybody under the age of 14 tell me what the Pentateuch is? Anybody at all? I can up the ante and go to 16. Anybody under 16 can tell me what the Pentateuch is. What does the word penta sound like? Yeah. Are there, yeah, it does kind of do. Is there anybody who can think of another word that starts with the word penta? 
Any kids? Is there any word you've learned in school that starts with the word penta? Pentagon. Very good. Very good. Now, why is it called a pentagon? Do you remember? That's a hard question. I won't put you on the spot too long. It has to do with its number of sides, right? How many sides does a pentagon have? Five, that's right. So guess how many books make up the Pentateuch? Five, very good. So the word penta comes from Greek and it means, penta means five. And tuke, what, what word does that sound like? Some people would say it sounds like book, but that's not, a, you'd say book, right? Wouldn't you tend to say book? So Liam, book, is it a book? It's a pen, five book, five books. First five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Okay, so the Pentateuch is those first five books, comes from a uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so we're going to stay in those first five books because there are some aspects of that that are foundational to how we move forward in, in, uh, in the rest of the flow of missions history. And so instead of starting in Genesis 1, though, I'm, I'm going to first jump back to Revelation chapter 21. So come with me over here to Revelation chapter 21. I feel like I need to set this up right. I'm not trying to create too complicated of an argument for you. I'm not trying to do that, but I I think it's helpful for us to see this. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to talk about, number one, in A, point A here under the central text, we're going to talk about the first commissioning that God gives to his people because we think about the Great Commission in the New Testament, we're going to talk about the first commissioning. Now, the key thought in this group of passages has to do with God's intent to fill the earth with His glory or the worship of Him. So listen, in the first group of key passages, we're talking about God's intent to fill the earth with the worship or the glory of Him. Okay? Now, in Revelation chapter 21, we have a description in verses 1 to 5 of where this all is headed. And so, we are not going to spend a lot of time here this morning because John is going to talk extensively about the book of Revelation next week, or not next week, at the, towards the end of our series. But a, an author who also wrote another book in that gray biblical theological series named G.K. Beale, he argues that the temple imagery that God initially creates through Israel is actually represented in that garden in, in, in Eden. And that in, in the book of Revelation, that image of a new heaven and earth, a new garden, also picks up on the temple imagery. And his point is, and his question is for us as we read Revelation chapter 21, 1 to 5, is why does John see first a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21.1, but then in other parts of the, the passage here, he sees a city and a temple and what looks like a new garden, okay? So why is that, Beale is asking. So let's read these verses together. My point's going to become clear. Don't get lost now. It's still early in the morning, but let's stay with me. Let's read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5 here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, don't get hung up on the sea disappearing. That's a a mention probably of the chaos of the pre-creation circumstances. But a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city. So we're talking about a new Jerusalem that's both holy and a city. So a temple city. 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This presence of God reality in all of the newly created environment here, this new heaven and earth, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And, who was seated, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, Beale argues, and I think he's right, that there's a strange collapse in the book of Revelation of temple imagery in the new heaven and the new earth and this idea of God's presence with his people, a garden-like reality that we see at the end in Revelation. In fact, if we were to take the time, which we can't, to go through Revelation, we would see that kind of imagery all over the place. And so at the end of the story, God intends to reunite the whole earth, the whole heaven and earth with the existence of him. In other words, at the end of the story, we see a clear picture, or we could argue for a clear picture, in which God intends to make his worship or his presence known throughout the earth. There's no doubt about that in the Bible. So the question that I'm asking is if that's the end of the story, if that's where God is headed, this, this intention to fill the earth with his presence, with the worship of him, is that the, the same intent of God from the beginning of the story? Or is it just that somehow God changed his mind over time and ended up promoting this idea that he would be worshipped throughout the earth? What is it in the beginning of the story that would make it, us think that the progression or, and the continuity, the continuation of God's plan is, is there, is present? So let's jump back. Jump back with me. Those are the kinds of dots I want to connect for you this morning, very briefly, as we ambitiously just talk about the whole Pentateuch, uh, just that. So jump back with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Genesis chapter 1 is before the fall, so before human beings sinned. And this is the pre-fall account. And these are the words that help to lead us forward in the direction of that end-time picture where God intended to dwell with man everywhere at all times. Okay? So let's read these familiar verses quickly. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth." So these verses are establishing that not only did God create human beings in his image and likeness, so just in a nutshell, that image and likeness creation has to do with them serving God vertically as his obedient sons and daughters, okay? And then them serving creation horizontally as those who are responsible to give care to that which God 
had created. So this vertical relationship, God's sons and daughters, horizontally giving care as servant kings and queens, if you will, of all that God created. And as they related to God, God had requirements of them. He desired three primary aspects from them. He desired loyal love from them that would imitate his loyal love. He desired that they trust him because he wanted them to see him as the sufficient creator. He desired that they obey him. And so loyal love, trust, and obedience. Now we have this false impression that in the garden, Adam and Eve were just sitting around, um, really fit people, by the way, you know? I mean, they had to have been, right? Um, And they had strategically placed leaves in any photo op. That's always important. And they were just randomly and casually just sort of picking fruit off trees indefinitely, just kind of flitting from here to there in bliss, picking fruit and eating fruit, okay? But that's not the picture that we have in the Scriptures. In fact, Beale argues this. He says that these verses explain that the presence of God, which was initially limited to the Garden Temple of Eden, initially limited to the Garden Temple of Eden, in other words, kids... Liam Griffiths, they were initially limited to stay in the garden, okay? But that presence was to be extended throughout the whole earth by these image bearers and God's mandate to them, what I will call his first commission to them, was that they represent and reflect his glorious presence and attributes throughout the earth. So that was a starting point or an impetus point in the garden that was intended to be spread throughout the earth from the beginning, And I'm telling you that that's important as a connection point to that final picture in Revelation. Because as God creates a new heaven and earth, he's creating that on the premise or the basis of the plan that he had from the beginning of time. Other passages do confirm that idea, okay? So I'm going to jump out of the Pentateuch just for one second. You can forgive me. Isaiah 45, 18 says, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 45, 18 Yahweh did not create the earth to be empty. He created the earth to be inhabited. So there's obvious example there of what I'm describing. Or Numbers 14.21. Phew! We're safely back in the Pentateuch now. Numbers 14.21. God says, He as the covenant keeper, the promise keeper, pledges. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And he goes on to make a statement. He's swearing on behalf of the earth being filled with the glory of God toward his own ends. You follow me there? So God takes it as a, as a given that one day the earth will be filled with his glory. And he talks about that all the way back in the book of Numbers, which is following close on the heels of the content in Genesis um, a couple books over. So I'm not arguing. What I'm not arguing here is that Adam's And Eve's pre-fall existence required missions in New Testament terms. That's not what I'm arguing, so don't misunderstand me. What I am saying is God did create them to extend or to mediate on his behalf, to be the radiation of his glory throughout the earth, okay? That Adam and Eve from the very beginning were created to radiate God's glory throughout the earth, and that they, as they did that, they would faithfully represent him because they would be communing with him as obedient sons and daughters and servant kings and queens who would steward his creation. 
In fact, without going into great detail, many authors talk about the language, the Hebrew language of cultivating and keeping used in the Old Testament there that also parallels language about the priesthood in, in other of the Pentateuch books. In other words, there's a sense in which Adam is performing a priestly function on behalf of God as he communes with God in the garden. And that priestly function was to extend into the earth. And so we have pictures of priestly function in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, other books of the Pentateuch, those five books, remember? Five book, Liam, you remember that? So that those five Pentateuch books and the, that priestly function uh, is part of the way in which Adam was serving. And so Beale underscores the point here. In fact, he says, we can speak of Genesis 1.28 as the first commission that was repeatedly applied to humanity. The commission was the blessing of God's salvific presence. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were to produce progeny, that means children, just in case you wondered, uh, who would fill the earth with God's glory being reflected from each of them in the image of God. And we do see evidence that that same commission, that first commission, continues after the fall. We see evidence of that there in your handout. I, I allude to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It's another marker of, of the, this salvific or glorifying presence of God going into the earth through Noah. When God commands Noah after the flood to be fruitful and multiply, in Genesis 9, 1, and fill the earth and subdue it, he says he makes the same, gives the same command to Noah. And we see evidences all throughout the Pentateuch that God intended for his presence to be made known in the world. Now, just very briefly, my friends, I'm going to mention the first gospel there, point B in your handout, the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. So we're going to move forward there from that point that I just described to the first gospel. Now, is anybody in here afraid of snakes? Don't snakes tend to scare everyone? I find that to be true around the world. Now, I've happened, I happen to grow up in places where we have some of the biggest snakes in the world and some of the most poisonous. So anacondas that the Yanomamu people eat, they call them wainkoya. In fact, they believe they have a spiritual component to them. And, and um, they, they, they can be, I've, we've sh killed them up to 20 feet long, a 20-foot-long anaconda because they're the heaviest constrictor in the world. That, that snake can weigh 500 pounds. So it does provide some food for the community um, if you want to eat it, right? We also have another snake that's, uh, that's a bushmaster um, that is a snake that is eight times more poisonous than an American copperhead. In fact, the mortality statistics say that 80% of the people who are bitten die. So 8 out of 10 people tend to die. And I, I, honestly, I've, I've had some close calls with Bushmasters. The biggest one I've killed was probably 8 feet, 8.5 feet. Um, they, the, some of my Yanomamu friends died from snake bites, and a missionary kid friend of ours died from snake bites. I found it, I've died from a snake bite. I found it to be the case that around the world, people tend to fear snakes. And it's interesting that we have here... In the book of Genesis, this serpent who uh, ends up being the one that's the primary enemy of the people of God and the person of God. And so here in Genesis, we're encountering this serpent, and it's an, a critical juncture in God's plan to fill the earth with his glory because human beings listen to the voice of the serpent, and they, they disobey. This, in other words, they, they, 
stop being loyal to God as his obedient sons and daughters. They stop loving him unconditionally. They stop trusting him unconditionally. They stop obeying him unconditionally. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve, and in fact, we see the fall, okay? And you know that. I'm just mentioning that point because at the fall, now the rescue plan of God has to has to take a shape that human beings may not have anticipated. And so here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, we see the way that that will take shape. And I, I take the term first gospel, by the way, from, from Latin, um, because early church fathers called these verses the, anybody know? Yeah, there you go. The Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in Latin. So that, that was a term used by the church fathers here. If we read verse 14, 15, I'm just going to read part of 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So yeah, we do see around the world a continual fear relationship, fear and respect relationship between people and snakes, but that's not primarily what God's talking about here. As you know, he's talking about the fact that one day, a singular seed of woman, one seed, that word is singular, will come and and bruise the head of the serpent. In other words, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a fatal blow would be dealt to the serpent. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection producing the final outcome that would allow for God's glory to be extended to the ends of the earth. So in the redemptive plan of God, the person of Christ would serve as a key reference point, as we'll see, for God's glory, his commission going into the earth. That commission picked up on and repeated all throughout. And here we have these first seeds of that redemptive plan or those purposes of God, and Cole's going to pick up on that theme and move it forward next week. Now, so I, I, here's what I've done. I've talked about the fact that all the way in the end time in Revelation, we have God's glory extended to the ends of the earth, and that's not just for Revelation. It connects back to Genesis chapter 1 because God commanded even Adam and Eve in the garden with their fig leaves and every other thing to go fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And he talks about that with Noah again. And now we see the gospel represented in the person of Christ because Christ is going to have to do redemptive work in this process of that occurring. But there's another really critical reference point that's more important than D&E, okay? So I'm less concerned about D&E on the outline and I'm more concerned about C, and that is the first language diversity. Because the question I'm asking in, in talking with you this morning is how does language become a part of this picture? I mean, we know that God intended his glory to be extended. We know that people were at work in some ways to do that. We know the fall occurred and we needed redemption. We know that God continued to challenge them in a commission. So as we move forward in primeval history here, which is we often talk about the first 11 chapters of Genesis as primeval history, you, you can in fact remember those in four words, all right? The first 11 chapters of Genesis, four words, creation, fall, Flood nations. Creation, fall, flood nations. First 11 chapters of Genesis, if you want to remember those. And now we need to look at the nations, because I I think many Christians misunderstand the nation's reference points as Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Creation, fall, flood, and nations. Now here we have a key thought that develops here in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, which is important for my moving forward in argument here, okay? 
and I'm, I'm navigating, having lost many of the children in the room already, but I'm going to keep pressing on here. So an important part of the conversation has to do with how do we factor languages into this issue? What is it that God was doing here in Genesis chapter 10? So if you'll turn over with me to Genesis 10, we'll, we'll talk about this for just a few minutes. Genesis chapter 10. The, the chapter 10 passage in the book of Genesis, most Bible commentators talk about or call the table of nations. The table of nations. And chapters 10 and 11 are related but let's bounce along through chapter 10, just hit a few highlight verses on our way through, and let me see if you pick up some of the verbiage that I also would be picking up on, given the kinds of places I've lived and worked in the world. Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1 here, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. These, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Okay, so God's starting to lay out what the descendants of Noah looked like after the flood. And he, so then God starts to walk through, through Moses, the, each of the sons of Noah. And he says in verse 5, he's talking about the sons of Japheth now. And he says, as, and as for the sons of Japheth, from these, verse 5, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Now notice we're front-loading the idea of language identity here, even all the way back in Genesis chapter, chapter 10. We have the same for Noah's other two sons in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Then we have the sons of Shem in verse 31-32. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. These are the clans, verse 32, this summary statement. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from the nations spread abroad on the earth, those after the flood there. And so all told, we have in this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, we have 72 in total, some 70 and 72, those two numbers somewhere in that range, the table of nations. But the question I'm asking you now, so I want you to stay with me here. I know we're in the bottom or the top or the middle of the hour, two-thirds in. Here we go. Come on now. In Genesis chapter 11, why does, why does Genesis 10 talk about languages if the Tower of Babel is happening in Genesis chapter 11? Like, how did we get language realities in chapter 10? Because Genesis 11 talks about the division of language, right? Are you with me? Do you know that? Right? Because Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel, which means confusion. So what's going on here? And we also tend to get confused in these two chapters because we're looking for Genesis chapter 10 chronologically to come before chapter 11. But in fact, in fact, most scholars believe that the text of Genesis chapter 11 actually occurs either prior to Genesis 10 or right at the beginning in, in, in the initial part of Genesis chapter 10. In other words, the, the biblical author is using this progression to get to Abraham, but in reality, the languages are divided in Genesis chapter 10. 
And so the fact of language division is a part, a key part, an integral part of the table of nations. In fact, I would say that Genesis chapter 11 is the significant feature of the table of nations. And I'm not alone in saying that. So these nations took shape, and in Genesis chapter 11, which we won't read, God intervenes to punish these people, these descendants of Noah, because of their heavy-handed, high-handed rebellion against him. Okay, They're in high-handed rebellion, and in order to keep them, in Genesis 11, from unifying against him, what does God do? He divides the languages, does he not? Now, I just want you to notice something with me because it's a key issue for missiology, okay? God did not divide these people over religious affiliation, cultural identity, national claims, ethnic claims, religion, race, access to money. Who is the richest and who is the poorest? Rich over here, poor over there. Caste systems, cowboys, and cowboys versus urbanites, okay? Nothing like that. Young versus old, so sociological divisions. Not any other sociological grouping do we see as evidence that God divided people from united, uniting in rebellion against him. No, listen to me. God himself created language as the point of division, that kept these groups of people from uniting in rebellion against him. The Bible tells us that this is the barrier that God established. This is the, the barrier that, that creates the, the, the organizing point. When I read the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, then what I see is that when I see words like people, nation, tribe, clan... The, the organizing point comes back to Genesis chapter 11 with language as the hub or the holding together of all of those identities. And it creates a biblically orienting place for us such that we understand what it means to overcome the kinds of barriers that God himself created in the process of the redemptive plan and purpose going forward. And so as God goes forward in the rest of the Bible with his redemptive purposes... He begins to demonstrate his own intention to overcome that specific barrier. He didn't want human beings to, to unite in his face to rebel against him in this kind of way. And so he himself instituted language as that defining barrier. And you think about this now. Think about this with me. We can meet in congregations around the world with people from all of those other what I call sociological groupings, poor and rich, high and low caste, white and black and Asian races, um, geographically having been separated, any of those other religious identities previously different, sins that previously would have subdivided us into identities. We can meet as believers in Christ in the context of the church with all of those other groups in play, and that honors God because Genesis... Or, Ephesians 4.28 tells us that there is no division that separates the people of God. But, I can assure you, and I'm going to give you some examples in a few minutes here, that language creates a kind of barrier to unity that has to be uniquely overcome. Intentionally overcome. Differently overcome. That has to be missionally overcome. 
And God intended that because he created it. So, the flow of my argument there, you're starting to feel and see. In Genesis chapter 12, 22, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. I think you know that that's the call to Abraham as this one who would be the set-apart representative of the first promises to the nations. God promised to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Cole's going to pick up on more of that as he moves the series forward next week. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that issue. It's, it's significant because Abraham is that, that, that shoot that, through whom all the, the families or nations of the earth will be blessed. And those promises are not stated in Genesis as conditional. In other words, if Abraham obeys, then all the nations of the earth will be blessed. No, in Genesis chapter 22, in fact, God says that because you have heeded my word, they will be blessed through your seed. So God makes that promise, that nation promise, and um, I'm not going to take the time because we don't have it, but the, and it's, it's fine. But if, you, if we track the story, so the second half of the book of Genesis is if the first half, Genesis 1 to 11, is creation, fall, flood, and nations, chapters 12 to 50, we can summarize with four names, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, there you go. There we go. We got the whole book. Creation, fall, flood, nations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Beale argues, this commentator I'm talking about here, he says that we see evidences of God continuing that commissioning, putting that commissioning responsibility on all of those men in various ways. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as those that were commissioned by God to do that work. Okay? I'm not going to continue to describe that particular issue there, D, very much more than that, because we'll pick it up as we move forward. I just want to make one touch, uh, touch and go in my Cessna 185 on our way towards the conclusion here, two touch and goes here. In E, I'm going to touch down just for a second. Whenever we tested a new airstrip, we would always, the pilots would always have to come in and do a whole bunch of touch and, touch and goes to make sure that they could touch and then clear that mountain over there on their way out. So if they ever had to do an abort on landing, they could manage that. So I'm going to touch here. First representative line chosen in Genesis chapter 48. Um, God makes the early promise to Judah there. You can look that up for yourself. That Judah will be the source of the obedience of all peoples. The descendants of Judah will be the source of the obedience of all peoples. I say wow to that because way back in Genesis 1,800 years before Christ, God is already clarifying his intent to be the source of obedience for all peoples through the lion, even the lion imagery is used in Genesis 49, the lion of Judah, the descendant of a future king that Cole will talk about. So there's a first representative line chosen through the, through the, the lion of Judah. And then finally there in F, we have also a first come and see nation who's chosen. The people of Israel, whom God sets apart as those who should be a light to the nations around them. The language there in Exodus 19 and Joshua 4. Again, you can look them up on your own, but there are many connections there too. You think about that language in Exodus chapter 19 that talks about a chosen possession 
a holy priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a people God has called out for himself, that Israel was supposed to be that come nations and see God's work through his chosen people such that you can also be drawn into the redemptive plan of Christ. Now, in seminal form, obviously, but in, in the future, that redemptive purpose would be clarified in a go-and-tell responsibility that we now have. But in the Old Testament, that responsibility was Israel, the city of Jerusalem, as a centerpiece that displayed the presence of God to the surrounding nations. So, I, in summary, am trying to craft here certain of the foundations that we need in order to understand the big picture of, of an adequate definition, a specific, a sharp definition of missions that I think is the most biblically warranted. That's my challenge to us. I know that no definition of any particular issue is perfect, right? If any of us manage that, we'd be in a different place, I suppose. But certainly what we're always trying to do is to clarify in such a way that, um, that we point towards that long-term and biblically faithful clarity of, of a theology like this. Now, I'm going to do something here that I think can illustrate the point for you. And I've never done this before, but we're talking about language as a barrier to access to God's commissioned word, okay? Ultimately, God's word never returns void. A language as a barrier to access to God's commissioned word as the most unique reality of barrier to access to God's commissioned word. So, how about I'll read some of God's word for you. I actually have a, a, a group of Bibles from various places. Let me read some of God's word for you. And let's see what you can understand. All right? Let's see where you start understanding. Okay? You ready? Como singa musagalahata te manulia lia mi sevile laso anumupilihino oloeso hubilesisi. Mupilihino moso aneita ilo palno hola imamulo wasi. Ihaliso mauli kaluhuasi. Anybody? That's Atta. You'd shock me if you understood this. There's probably six people besides the Atta in the world who can understand that. That's Atta. How about this? This one might be a little easier. Yai baratani yana mama makubluka no hima ha balhoni yai balaba ihilubu yai mama hui bihilubu ali simelema bihilubu ali behedila buhi wehe benobre ai siwani mabo babani mi bloba. Anybody? No? Well, there's probably 25 or 30 people besides the Yanamamu in the world who can understand that, who are Christians. How about this? This one might sound a little more familiar to you. God, he got one plapikni, that's all he stopped. That's all God, he liked him to my soul, get the man, made him long ground. All the same now, you give him this plow, one plapikni, long all. And make him all same long old get a man many bleep long all no can lose, no God. By all kiss him life, he stop good all time, all time. What do you think? That's a majority language in the world, by the way. That's Melanesian pigeon. Interesting, right? How about this one? 
Some, some, some of you can, can handle this, I know. Porque Deus amou o mundo de tal maneira que deu o seu Filho unigênito para que todo aquele que nele crê não pereça, mas tenha a vida eterna. Anybody? Portuguese, right? Majority language, okay? There are more people in this room who would understand that, right? Are you with me? More access. One more here before we... Okay, here, here we go. Ready? Let's see how many can follow this. Porque tanto amó Dios al mundo que dio a su Hijo unigénito para que todo el que cree en él no se pierda, sino que tenga vida eterna. Anybody? Yeah, there you go. There's a progression here, right? There's a progression here of intelligibility, of comprehension, of access. Now, we could sit here and try to come up with some other barrier that would match that. We could try. We could talk about how we're immersed in this or that identity on some other side. But the fact is, it's undeniably the case that if you do not take the time to learn your way in to another language and cultural environment, truth is not accessible. And so from the beginning of time, God himself was at work to fill the earth with his presence. He himself created a rescue plan after the fall that would overcome the sin barrier. But he himself also created a language barrier that would keep a rebellious humanity from uniting against him in that primary barrier of language. And so, friends, just so you know, there was... Yeah, those are all John 3.16. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have it here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. A little clearer? There are 7,151 languages in the world. Did you know that? There are 3,100 still lacking access to the gospel. Now, on your inside of your handout, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but uh, we have, we've listed a working definition of missions that a whole host of us have been thinking about over the course of time. We may tweak it. I'm notorious for tweaking things, just so you know. <laughs> it's a dangerous occupation, tweaking things. Um, and then we have implications as well there for you. And I'm not going to describe a lot of these. I think we've, we've begun to lay foundations for gospel, right? The, the gospel thread, the gospel narrative, for cultural linguistic boundaries there and your definition for places where God has not yet been worshipped as part of that. And so just encourage you as we continue thinking through these weeks together, help us, work with us, talk with us, and let's try to find our way through to uh, more of us understanding, certainly, and, and embracing this kind of a, of a clarity in a, in a definition of missions. All right? Any, any questions from you guys besides that? The question from John is a good... Yeah, John, I actually had the English Bible up here, and I sort of lost track of reading it. Um, 
Other questions? Yeah. Good question. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, the that. Yeah, the, from the recommended reading. Thanks, Sean. From the recommended reading on the back, what would we recommend reading first? Each of those books focuses a bit differently. If you, if you have a concern about the way in which missions is configured in the world today and the kinds of trends we see in missions, then that No Shortcut to, to Success is a good book. If you're trying to understand in a short form the key components of a definition very similar to um, what we're talking about this morning when everything is missions is good, the Tyndale biography is super inspiring uh, and super encouraging to read. Tyndale, he was martyred for translating the scriptures. I mean, is that, that feels ludicrous to us, but that wasn't ludicrous then. Um, the salvation of the ends of the earth takes what I've done really quickly and lays that out in much more developed form. Uh, and then the mission of the church is very pertinent to the kinds of conversations happening in what is the mission of the church in our environment today. So it kind of depends on what you're looking Looking for, but a, a general primer overview on definitions. Um, the one there that if missions is everything, and then um, an overview on the state of missions in the world. No shortcut to success is good. Other questions? Yeah. No, I. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, I've learned, this, and it's, this is, I, I'm not, it's not a promotion issue, self-promotion issue. Like, I've just had, been in environments to learn these languages. And so someone would come up to me and say, oh, you must be really good at that. No, it's a lot of work. So I figure learning a second language is like at least earning a bachelor, or a master, or a two-year associate's degree and probably more like earning a bachelor's degree in terms of hours invested. Well, people don't want to do that. That's too much work. The, the kinds of ways in which missions is configured in the world are such that we want to take easier strategies, shortcuts to get there. And it's just too much work. So this kind of an approach would require us to be in place for a long time learning a majority language and then sometimes learning a, a minority language. And I believe it's the lack of vision for the end result, which is mature churches established to the glory of God, who have access to the written word of God, who understand how to read the word of God, who understand how to study it for themselves and all that. So it, it's a view of missions that shortcuts and short changes people learning second language as well. And it's very pervasive, you guys. Like, we have a system that we use, we implement, that gets people to a high-level proficiency checkpoint. And I find consistently that organizations do not, do not achieve that. They're, they fall well short of that kind of proficiency outcome. Yeah. 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 Sure. I mean that that the, it's the same part of the same issue is the lack of of readiness to engage in a long-term church planning task. 
Yeah, um, the, the idea that do time frames like the short-term mentality that would have people go to the field for two or three years instead of planning to be there long-term. Does that impact the ways in which people do or don't commit themselves to language learning? Yes, they do. it does. I, I, here's, the, here's the challenge for me, seriously. I, we disoriented 38 new workers to go into these kinds of contexts. I grew up in these settings. This is hard work. And when you talk of factor in stability and maturity and health of outcomes for churches planted there, that is sobering challenging. And so when we, I look young people in the face and say, hey, this is what you're going into, it's hard work. It's much easier to talk about, let's just go and have some sort of a, an adventure for two years. We don't have to commit ourselves this long term. We may or may not learn any local language very well, but we can say the name of Jesus and, and people have heard where Christ is named after that, and then away we go. And, I, and, all, and you know, I'm saying that facetiously, but in all seriousness, a lot of the mindset has that kind of end in it. It doesn't have the clarity and the long-term commitment to staying with the work, to see churches planted, to establish, grow to maturity. My, my measure of outcome is in four generations, what Bible are they using? What truth are they teaching? Who are the leaders of the churches? What kind of polities in place there? All of those kinds of same questions we would ask ourselves. Why wouldn't we ask those questions about people in other places? And so just the challenge for me of, of uh, that, that kind of outcome in the long term is really significant. Other questions? I'm going to close this in prayer. Um, yeah, we, we lived with local people. So one of the components of learning language to this degree is, is some element of immersion. People ask me all the time, what does it take to learn a language to that level? I, and, and they're in maybe university program or whatever. At some point in time, they will have to be immersed in a language environment implementing the right kinds of language learning activities. And so we, we've built a program to help people to do that. But it requires access to local speech communities. It, it requires access to communities of speakers. Because you, you will plateau at a certain point. We call it market-level fluency. You will become market-level fluent, a babbling, progressing speaker who can't dig into deep-level conversation with people. And, and the scriptures are fairly deep, as you can imagine. It's probably been your experience with them, right? Yeah. Other questions as I pray? We'll have opportunity to continue to ask questions together. And as you guys think of questions, please be prepared to bring them to us. As we move forward, thanks for being here. Good to see you all. I'm going to pray for us, okay? Father, we're grateful for your work in our lives. I pray that we will take seriously our privileges and our opportunities to share your truth. I know some of us have local spheres of influence, and we represent that strengthening work of the local church, that Timothy work, if you will. And that's important, and we don't want to minimize that. But we also know that there's a priority that we hear of your glory going to the ends of the earth, overcoming these kinds of barriers that you yourself created. And so we want to join in with you in humility and trust you for outcomes that would truly glorify you. And so we pray that to you today in the name of Jesus. Amen.